Good evening. Well, it, this is a good sign. The, the sign of a class being at least decent is you have less than 20% deficit the next week. So we had 52 last week. We've got 51 this week. I'll take it. So that's pretty fantastic. So I'm glad that you guys are back here this week. Um, today, does anybody know what today's feast day is? They did not go to mass today. Anybody know what today's feast day is? September 8th. What happens nine months before September 8th? Yeah, what's today's feast day? Today is the Nativity of the Virgin Mary, because nine months ago was December 8th, which is the feast of the Immaculate Conception. Now, what's interesting is when we talk about um, the Immaculate Conception and the Nativity of Jesus, or the Nativity of Mary, both of those, the Gospel readings, have nothing to do with Mary, have everything to do about Jesus. Kind of interesting kind of tidbit. But tonight we're here to talk about the Father. So what better way to talk about the Father than to invoke his name? So let us begin in prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together in the words that our Savior gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, where we talked about who is God, um, this week and the next two weeks, we'll be talking and breaking apart really the Trinity, the Father this week, the Son next week, and the Holy Spirit the week after. Now, next week is a tall task because everything really in Scripture leads to God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So we're going to talk spe specifically about things with him um, next week, but then go into weeks six and seven when we talk about the fall of man and, and the need for redemption, go and break apart a little bit more the Passover, comparing it to the Jewish Passover and things like that. Just kind of whet your appetites for the things that are to come. But tonight we talk about God the Father. Now one of the things I want to make sure that we don't fall into is the heresy of modalism, which is where God puts on his hat for the Father when he's acting at the hat, and when he's acting as the Father, he puts on the hat of the Son when he's acting on the Son, and he puts on the hat of the Holy Spirit when he's the Holy Spirit. No, the Trinity is indivisible, but each person of the Trinity, as we talked about a little bit last week, is God and indivisible, but also unique in their personhood. It's really difficult. We'll talk a little bit more in these classes, and also when we get to um, the Feast of the Holy Trinity, talking a little bit more about how the Trinity works. As I talked about last week, uh, St. Augustine wrote De Trinitate, and in that he tried to understand the totality of the Trinity, and we learned with that story that we told last week that because we are limited and God is boundless, limitless, we can never truly understand everything about God. But throughout history, throughout human history, there's always been this search for something higher. And so tonight I'm going to bring in a little bit more of the catechism we brought in last week. Um, I'm going to bring in a couple of different scriptural stories. Um, and then I'm going to reference um, a book that I highly recommend. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henri Nouwen, um, talking about the uh, parable of 
the prodigal son, and we'll get into that a little bit towards the end as well. It's fantastic. So uh, if you haven't heard of it, The Return of the Prodigal, um, it really focuses on um, this image of um, the son coming back in the story of the prodigal son. As I said, we'll, we'll read into that a little bit later. So when we talk about God, we talk about, in the Catechism, really focusing on chapters or paragraphs 198 to 278, which ends up being about this much of the Catechism. It's only 80 paragraphs, very small. I am not going to sit here and quote the, 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 the um, Catechism to you because I don't want you to fall asleep and I want you to come back next week. But I will touch on some of the um, verbiage that it does have in the Catechism because there's so much to unpack. So last week I had five pages of notes. This week I've got two pages and splattering. So we'll go through some of that. So a profession of faith begins with God. Why? Because that's who we are professing that we believe in. God the Father Almighty. So we know something about God. He is all-powerful. And he is the beginning and the end. We hear about God being the Alpha and the Omega. Now, when we think of beginning and end, we think of a start and a stop, right? But when we talk about God being the Alpha and the Omega... We're talking about the start of creation and the end of creation, because God is infinite in both directions. So there's a difference between saying God is infinite and God continues forever, because infinity goes in every direction. I am going to do the best that I can to wrap my mind around this to help you wrap your mind around it. We're going to talk a little bit about how God is not bound by space or time. We are, though. And because we are bound by space and time, it's really difficult for us to put into our minds and into our intellect something that we can't wrap our heads around. So when we talk about everything happening in the same instant, we are using words that are created to try and explain something that is not created. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not just eternal and not just everlasting, but they are infinite in every direction. None of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, were ever created. Did I lose anybody yet? So when we talk about God being the first, God being the Father, he is that first divine person of the most holy Trinity, that our creed begins with the creation of heaven and earth. Why? Because when we look back in Scripture, how does Scripture have existence beginning? It doesn't say anything about the Big Bang. It doesn't say anything about evolution. What does Scripture say? So we're going to pull out this nifty thing called the Bible and see what Scripture actually says. Once we can get to the first page. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss and a mighty wind sweeping over the waters, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. God then separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Evening came, morning followed the first day. And what's interesting is when God created and scripture was written from what God created. We begin with what we know, the physical universe. Remember, when we look at scripture, when we look at the teachings of scripture and tradition, we have to look at them as th at the time that they were written. 
One of my favorite words from one of my favorite movies is important when we look at scripture. It's called Sitzenleben, the German word, and it's about the time of life in which it was written. Does anybody know what movie that that was quoted in? Where if you look at the Sitzenleben, Rudy, one of my favorite football movies ever, Rudy, Rudy. But there's a theological conversation in the middle of that movie where he actually talks about how we can't take things out of their original context. But many times when we're looking at Scripture, we're looking at Scripture not in the context it was written, but in our own context. So when Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch of the Torah, were written, they were believed to be written by the same person. Anybody know who, who supposedly wrote all five of the first books? Moses. Because they end with the death of Moses. So I don't know how he wrote his death in, but he did somehow. But he wrote into the end of the Pentateuch, death. At the beginning, though, was humanity's understanding of how creation began, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we look at the physical world around us, look back 5,000 years, think back to 5,000 years ago, we didn't have a lot of the scientific knowledge we have today. Galileo wasn't even a blip in existence yet. We didn't know that the earth revolves around the sun. We thought at that point, everything revolved around the earth. Why? Because we're humans, and as humans, the world revolves around us, or that's our naive understanding of how the world exists. And over time, we begin to look at the world around us and try and reorient based on not just us, but the things that are eternal, the eternals, the stars, the heavens, the earth. And so we begin to interpret then daily life based on what we experience. So the heavens, the things that are not limited, obviously, has to be where God is. And then everything under the earth, because again, we didn't know that the earth was a globe back then. It was still flat earth. And depending on which people you listen to today, they still believe in the flat earth theory. Don't know how, but there are still people that believe and profess that the earth is not round, that it's a flat thing. Well, then that was heaven. We are on earth and hell is below our feet. So when we look at the story of creation, we have to look at it with the understanding of man Five to 10,000 years ago, how did they understand the world around them? So God created the heavens and the earth, and then some part of the day is in darkness. Some part of the day is in light. The part that's in darkness, where the bad things happen because it's an absence of light, which is creation, you've got day, you've got night. And that's how we begin to mark the passage of time as the sun coming up and sun going down or the brightness of the day and the darkness of the night. And this is important as we go along, specifically when we think about Christ as the light of the world. When we look at the day that the church in the liturgical calendar has made Christmas, the darkest day in the year does anybody know traditionally what the darkest day of the year is? December 21st. So the light of the world is born right after the darkness of the earth to show that every day after Christ is born at Christmas, more light comes into existence. Hmm. 
Jesus probably was not born on December 25th, as Mary was probably not born on September 8th. But over time, we take in these traditions and we implant them in to make them, again, fit to our understandings of creation. Now, I know I was born on June 29th of 1985. I realize I'm dating myself by saying that or undating myself by saying that, however you want to look at it. But we have specific dates and specific times that mean things to us in life. So too did the early Israelite people. Remember, they believed in the stars. They believed that the stars told us a story and they could guide our paths. In fact, that's how they started charting paths. And they, to this day, when we look at compasses, when we look at star charts, that's how many seafarers determine which direction they're going based on the constellations in the sky at a certain time of the day. But also, the early Israelite people, the early Jews, would have also believed in numerology. Do you guys know what numerology is? The study of numbers and their significance. And we hear a lot about those, and we're like, oh, (laughs) we're 21st century people. We don't believe in numerology. Really? How many hotels don't have a 13th floor? I mean, they all do that have a 14th floor, because technically the 14th floor is the 13th floor, but we don't put that number in there. Why? Because we believe the number 13 is bad. Why? I don't know. And what is the the number that's been attributed to the beast? 666. Why? We can get into some of that when we talk a little bit about the last things. But we look at different numbers of having different and important things. 3, 7, 10, 12, 40. All of those numbers are very significant when we look back to our Hebrew history. When we look back at the Old Testament in Scripture, those numbers play significance time and time again. Why would seven be significant? Well, for us in 21st century world, why is seven significant for Catholics? Seven sacraments. But it took 12 centuries for us to narrow them down to seven sacraments. Why seven sacraments? There's a lot of different reasons why. Seven days of the week. Well, were there originally seven days of the week? How many months are there in a year? Twelve, twelve tribes, twelve disciples, twelve apostles. So these numbers all make sense when we look at them. And all of this kind of comes from the Sitzenleben of the time that Scripture was written. So we have to look at the context of everything. And everything that we do is based on the context of who God is and who we are in reference to God. So God himself revealed himself throughout history. We hear about it in Genesis very vividly. We hear about it in Exodus very vividly. We know about God revealing himself in the person of Jesus Christ, but when did the Father reveal himself to humanity? Well, think about the burning bush where God gave his name to Moses. And what was the name that God gave to him? I am who am. I looked at that and said, okay, what does that mean? I am who am. Well, when you conceive of God, when you can conceive of the God of your fathers, you've heard that saying before, the God of our fathers, who are the fathers of the faith? Well, for us as Catholic, we look to the early church fathers. We look to the early saints who wrote about the life of Christ, specifically in those first three or four centuries. 
But when we look back to the God of our fathers, the fathers of the faith, we can look back to the first book in Scripture, Genesis. Who is the father of faith? Well, God the Father. After God the Father, who gives us the gift of faith that we talked about last week, who was the first father? No. Adam was in the garden after the fall of man. There's one, when we talk about the lineage of the, of the fathers of the faith, after Noah, after the fall of man, who's the first one that really pops up and makes a big difference? I think I heard it. Abraham. And actually, before we can even get to Abraham, we have to go to Abram, A-B-R-A-M. I really struggled with that name growing up because it made absolutely no sense to call him Abram and then call him Abraham. And then when you have it in Spanish, it's Abraham. It's like, okay, what's the difference between Abraham and Abraham? An extra ah? I don't know. But it's how you pronounce the word in Spanish. It's a little bit different. So I was really confused when I was going through it. It's like, wait a second, you go from Abram to Abraham, and you go from Abraham to Abraham, no wonder we're confused sometimes when we have some of these names in Scripture. But this happens in a very specific place in Scripture. Genesis chapter 15, which is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. One of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, ironically because of someone that grew up at this parish. Um, Father Simeon Spitz. A few years ago, when we were in seminary together, we were teaching together out at uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe Catholic Summer Camp. And he was talking about covenants. What's a covenant? When we think of covenants, we think of contracts, right? We, we, we think of, I do something, you do something, we agree, ha-ha! But back in old days, there were specific kinds of covenants. And the covenant that God made with man as the first covenant that Jesus then comes and says, I make a new covenant. He came, said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He was talking about not abolishing the covenant between God and man made through Abram, who becomes Abraham. You following with me so far? In that covenant, it's called a blood oath covenant. Has anybody ever heard that term before, a blood oath covenant? No. Some have. Okay, good. So what a blood oath covenant is, you have two parties that are making this blood, this oath. I mean, we see it on TV all the time where you like you sign it in blood. But do you know why people signed in blood? You like spit on your hand and shake the hand. It's disgusting. But it's just as bad as mixing your blood. Do you know why they would sign in blood? It goes back to this blood oath covenant. Each party is saying, if I break my side of this covenant, you can kill me. And as we'll see, bathe in my blood. Really graphic when we look at it. But when we look at this covenant between God and man, the covenant that God made with Abraham, Abram at that time, was a blood oath covenant. So we can see going into Genesis chapter 15 why he, Abraham, Abram at that time, falls petrified. Why he is terrified that God wants to make this type of covenant with him. So let me read through this and then explain a little bit why this is important. The Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. I will make your reward very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me if I die childless and have only a servant of my household, Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a servant of my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, 
No, that one will not be your heir. Your own offspring will be your heir. Now, we know who he's talking about here. He's talking about Ishmael, who was born of his um, handmaiden, who was um, Hagar. So, So that's who Abram is talking about. He couldn't have a child with his wife Sarai at that time. She wasn't able to bear a child. Then the word of the Lord came to him. No, that will not be your heir. Your own offspring will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. I love when God is just kind of snippy like that. Look up, count them if you can. It's kind of how I interpret that. It's fantastic. Just so, he added, will your descendants be? Abram put his faith in the Lord who attributed it to him as an act of righteousness. He then said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as a possession. Lord God, he asked, how will I know that I will possess it? He answered him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, split them in two, and placed each half opposite the other, but the birds he did not cut up. Now, to us in 21st century America, we're like, I don't get it. Why is he bringing these animals, and why is he cutting them in two? What's going on here? Well, again, for the blood oath sacrifice, the people of this time, of that Tzitzim Laban, would have known that he was about to make a covenant, and they were going to seal it not in their own blood, but in the blood of the sacrifice. We talk about the sacrificial offering made before the Lord. So he takes these animals, cuts them in two, and divides them. What happens when you, when you cut those animals and you divide them, their blood flows into a ravine. And in this ravine, what they would do in a blood oath covenant, each party would walk through the blood. Nowadays, we've gotten better and we just sign our names or you sign your, your name in blood. But back then, they didn't really write much. There wasn't much written down. And so they would make these covenants by literally walking through blood. He then said to him, (laughs) Birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Abram scared them away. As the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a great dark dread descended upon him. Again, that's when Abraham, Abram at that time, realized what's going on. Oh, crap. He's going to be calling me to something that I don't think I'm going to be able to hold up my share of this. And so he's terrified falls into a dark dread that descends upon him and falls asleep. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will reside as aliens in a land not their own, where they shall be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they must serve, and after this they will go out with great wealth. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace. You will be buried at a ripe old age." In the fourth generation, your descendants will be there, for the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. That was just kind of a random paragraph. Continuing the story, though, when the sun had set and it was dark, there appeared a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, 
and the Jebusites. So outside of all of the people that have a bunch of ites on their name, which are the people of those places, what happened there? Well, this flaming torch and this flaming brazier both pass through the blood. When we talk about the salvation and redemption of humanity, this is the first place we go, Genesis 15. When we read back through Old Testament Hebrew texts, we have to do so with the lens of Jesus, because we know what the rest of the story is. Like Paul Harvey, now for the rest of the story. Well, the rest of the story is Jesus is the answer for everything, right? But what happened beforehand, we didn't really get the rest of the story until the New Testament. But in Genesis 15, when God makes this first covenant with, with man through Abram, he makes this blood covenant that your descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and other places as numerous as the sands of the seashore. And to seal this covenant, God, not Abram, passes not once, but twice through the blood. The people of this time would have known that fire and wind were symbols of God. Again, in 21st century understanding, symbols of which person of of the Trinity? The third person, the Holy Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to that in two weeks when we talk about the Holy Spirit and the different symbols and symbolism seen throughout Scripture. But the people of this time would have known that one of the ways that God spoke to them was through fire and through wind. So when this flaming torch and this flaming pillar of fire go through the blood, what God is saying to Abram at this time is, we will seal this covenant, not with your blood, but with mine. Fast forward a few thousand years, what does Jesus say? My blood is the blood of the covenant. Connects past, present, and future. So when we look back then at this covenant, God is saying, if you, humanity, man whom I am making this covenant with, if you break your side of the covenant, the price of that is paid in my blood. But also, if I break my side of the covenant and don't make your descendants as numerous as stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore, that price is on me as well. And God became man in the incarnation. We'll talk about that next week in a very specific way as well. When Jesus took on flesh, why did Jesus have to come fully human, fully divine? Because of this covenant made in Genesis 15 to pay the price of man breaking our side of the covenant with God. Sin is breaking of the covenant. The fall is breaking of the covenant. That was before, of course. But when God gave us this first covenant, this blood oath covenant, and we continue on when we have the Ten Commandments, another covenant, we have other promises and covenants made between God and man that God gave us time and time and time again. Hey, stop making mistakes. Huh. You're not perfect. Well, crap. Well, I will still hold up my end of the bargain and still send my son to pay the price of your sins. So with his blood, with the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, the price of sin, of humanity breaking the covenant, was paid. But then Jesus, as we'll talk about next week, makes a new covenant with man and humanity. We'll talk about that more in depth next week. Questions so far? 
not all at once, that's fine. <clears throat> well, and a lot of it, again, stop me if you have any questions, stop me if something doesn't make sense, stop me if I'm talking too fast. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm ADHD, um, and I'm also an extrovert, so I think out loud, and if I don't say what I'm thinking right in that moment, I'm gonna forget it. So one of the reasons I talk so fast is because if I don't, I'm gonna totally forget it. Yes, sir, yeah. A brigier, kind of like our thurible. So, so th think of the thurible that we use, the thurifer uses for incense, but with like fire coming out of it. It's like epic <laughs> going through the, it'd be really kind of cool. Be like, if, if you've ever been to, Santi to uh, Santiago de Compostela, um, you, have you guys have heard of the movie The Way uh, with Martin Sheen, and he ends um, in Santiago de Compostela, um, does the, um, the Camino. Well, there they've got this thurible, I kid you not, about this big, it takes like, seven guys to swing this thing, and it goes swinging down the middle aisle. That's what I think of when I think of the fiery brigier in this reading. So those, get out of the way, it's gonna kill you. I'm coming back. And that's kind of the image that I look at when I look at this. So it's, it's one of those, huh. And then when I think of the pillar of fire, I think specifically of the Exodus story, when Pharaoh has, or, uh, Moses has gotten the Israelites out, and they're about to cross um, the Jordan, the Red Sea, too many rivers. They're about to cross the Red Sea, and this pillar of fire comes down behind them, blocking the path between them and the Egyptians. That's what I think of when I think of that pillar of fire. It's this giant tornado. There's like, get out of my way or die. And just kind of there. And it's like, huh. So we've got Santiago de Compostela, the Camino, and die. Don't want to go into those things, right? But that's probably why Abram was a little terrified at this moment. He's like, huh, I'm asleep, but what just happened here? And then he continues on with that covenant. So when we talk about God the Father, we talk about this God that created everything because he loves. We go back again to Genesis because this is where really the foundation of the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic faiths come from is really the first 15 to 20 chapters of Genesis. So if you haven't read Genesis, go home and do it. It's 50 chapters. That may sound like, oh my gosh, Father, that's going to take forever. Each chapter is like five paragraphs. Yeah, it takes some time, and you have to kind of go through it, and there's a lot of names in there. I think there's a lot of names in there. You should have been a mass today. Today we had <laughs> the gospel that we have twice a year. It's my favorite one, and it was great at mass today. All the ladies were sitting there and saying, Father, you're reading the wrong reading. There's two options. You can do the full length or the short one. I always choose the full one. Why? Because if they give me the option, I want to put more scripture in. I know I'm Catholic, but scripture's good. But in today's gospel at mass, it's the same one that we read for the evening mass for the Christmas vigil. Did you know that for Christmas, there's always three sets of readings? There's the vigil mass, the midnight mass, and the mass the day of. All the readings can be different. I always choose to do the vigil mass, specifically for the vigil, because that's when we have all the kids, and it's a lot of fun, and it's the longest gospel known to man. The genealogy of Christ from Abraham down. 42 generations. It's like, what were you thinking, Father? I was, normally for me, it's, I was thinking, I've got a deacon. He gets to try and sound those names out. <laughs> Just wait, Kirk. <laughs> but it, it's fantastic because in the midst of that, we see the fullness of time, the plan that God has from the beginning 
through 42 generations of humanity, ending with the birth of Christ. And the two times a year that we hear that is today, the nativity of Mary, and at Christmas, the nativity of her son. It's beautiful that those two things match up that way. But what's even more beautiful is in the fullness of time, which is all of time, the beginning and the end, and everything in between, with those 42 generations, we have thieves, we have liars, we have murderers, we have adulterers, we have rapists, we have some of the worst people known to man. But what God is saying is, every person played a part in salvation history. Their sins don't define them, their creation in my image and likeness does. And so when we look at God the Father, and we look at those 42 generations from the beginning to the end, that's a very important story when we look at the figure of the Father in the New Testament. And that's why we bring up, in a very real way, the parable of the prodigal son. Now what's interesting is the parable itself, very short, um, very, very short. We normally think of this really long, drawn-out story. It's not. Um, I went through, it's like, oh, that's, that, that's the whole story? Well, we always have aberrations off of it, and it kind of grows from there, right? Well, let me read it to you real quick. So we go to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Then he said, a man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. Now, if you've ever said this to your parents, because what he's saying here, keep in mind, when do you get your inheritance? When they're dead. So the younger son is saying, Dad, you are dead to me. Give me what's mine. Now, we normally don't read that when we see this. We say, oh, the younger son just wanted his inheritance. He wants to go off and live a good life. No, he says to him, you are dead to me. Give me what is owed me when you're gone. Whew. All right. So the father then divided the property between them. No father in their right mind would say, okay, here's what you get. Most was like, Psh, get out. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he found himself in dire need. At which point, my dad would say to me, failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. You took half of, your inher you took half of the inheritance? Figure it out. But again, the Lord in his mercy is, is more loving and merciful than that. My dad would still give us whatever we need anyways. <laughs> so he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but no man, nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? But here I am, dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son, Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he's beginning to realize, oh crap, I made a bad decision. How do I make this up? And this is pretty much the tradition of the relationship between God and humanity at this time. I talk, I talk a lot about wash, rinse, and repeat. That's what the Israelites did a lot. We would be given this great covenant by God. 
would say, yes, we're going to hold up to this. Ooh, look, golden calf. Baal, we shall praise that. God threatens us with famine. Famine. Oh, no, I made a bad decision. Lord, I'm going to repent. Let me come back to you. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. Now, this is, I think, one of the most important lines in this gospel. The father looks up and is filled with compassion. He sees his son. Now, for most of us, if we have a family member that has told us you are dead to me, has stolen half of what we own, we're going to look up and say, keep walking. That's the nicest thing most of us would normally say, right? But he looks up with compassion. And with compassion, he sees his son who's been created in his image and likeness because that's what sons are to fathers. We begin to make their life plans for them before they're even out of their mother's wombs. He's going to be a football player. He's going to be a carpenter. He's going to be a whatever. Am I about right on that? Do you guys all have plans for us growing up? Or am I just completely off base? It sounds about right to me, at least. But he looks up with compassion, looks up with love. And what does he do? He doesn't wait. He doesn't pull the, uh-huh, let's go. You know what you did. You know what you did. No. He gets up. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. So he's not just sitting there going like this. He's working, he's working. He looks. And I can just imagine when I close my eyes, this field of just uncut grass, with like waist-high grass. And he drops whatever he's doing, looks up, and he's just so overcome with emotion that he runs and just tackles him in a bear hug, right? Because that's what it means to be a person of compassion. It means that we are so filled with joy, that we are so filled with love that nothing can keep us from sharing it and embracing it. That's the compassion that this father looks up with. He ran to his son, embraces him. I can just see him, like, going to spear him and, like, takes him down in a bear hug. And he's like, I can't breathe! I can't breathe! Dad's, for me, most dads are like, good, you deserve it! But no, he's like, no, okay, I'll let you go. And he kisses him on the forehead. Gives him a kiss. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I know, or against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son, But his father ordered his servants, quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast, because the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Why would I read this when we talk about the father? We talk about the love of the father, the love in which creation exists, the love in which the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exists. This is the love we're talking about. And we are the prodigal son. Every one of us, because we're sinners. All of us at times in our lives have said to the Father, you're dead to me. You don't matter. That I'm going to do what I'm going to do and strike me dead if it's wrong. Now, we, not everybody actually says those words. Sometimes we do, though. 
I can just imagine us being like Jim Carrey in the movie Bruce Almighty when he gets really mad at God. Smite me, almighty smiter! Like, we've probably had thoughts like that before. Or, God, you are just this evil man with a magnifying glass and holding it over an anthill, and we're the, the earth is the anthill, and you're just trying to punish us. But this vision of the Father is different from that. This vision of the Father is our heavenly Father, not our earthly Father. It's a Father who knows us better than we will ever know ourselves, who loves us more than we can possibly understand, and more than we can possibly ever love ourselves, though we definitely try to love ourselves a lot, that whole center of the universe thing. But he authentically loves us, so much so that he fulfilled that covenant with his son, with his passion, death, and resurrection. He fulfilled that covenant, not because he had to, but because just like the Father in in this gospel, he looks upon us when we come back to him, specifically in the confessional, he looks at us with eyes of compassion. He looks upon us with mercy. That's why when Pope Francis a few years ago, when he was talking to priests in the year of the priesthood, said, priests, if you cannot be merciful in the confessional, get a desk job. Like, ooh, wow, that's touche. But then I began to think a little deeper about that. I was like, you know what? That's pretty true. How many times have we been to the sacrament of reconciliation and felt worse afterwards? Sometimes, unfortunately, we do. Sometimes I did growing up. That's why for me, this gospel is the heart of that room. My job is to look up with the eyes of God on whoever is confessing whatever they're confessing with compassion. Because when God looks at me, he looks at me with compassion because I too am a sinner. But many times as priests, we haven't received that compassion and that mercy and that grace and that love of God, so it's hard for us to share it. We haven't been able to see in anyone in our lives this compassion or this mercy of a father. In fact, think of your own father. Think of your dad. If you're sitting next to him, think good things. Sorry, Adam, you're the one who sat next to your dad. <laughs> but think of your relationship with your dad. Good, bad, ugly, and different. Now, how many times do we take that relationship and impose it on our Heavenly Father? Growing up, for me, with my dad, I wasn't scared of him. He was never mad. He was never angry. He was disappointed. And the worst thing that my dad could ever tell me growing up was, Danny, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Talk about cutting like a double-edged sword on the way in and on the way out. I was like, <gasps> what do you do with that? And so many times when I looked at my relationship with God growing up, I would see God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit looking at me that same way and saying, Danny, I'm not mad. You're human. You're a sinner. I'm just disappointed. And so I always felt like my job, my role in life, was to do whatever I could do to not disappoint God. Now, that was what I transposed was instead of my relationship with God on my dad, my relationship with my dad on God. 
So many of us don't have good relationships with our fathers or with our earthly fathers, so we really struggle to have a relationship with God the Father. Because my dad beat me. My dad abused me. This isn't my dad, but this is what we say. My dad beat me. My dad abused me. My dad was, was never there. He abandoned me. My dad was never what I needed or wanted him to be. How can I look at God the Father with love? When the earthly father that I had, I don't understand it. We see this played out in human history. We see this played out in our own families and some of our own lives. But at the heart of that is Satan. Satan wanting to convince us of something that is not true. Now, your dad could have been horrible to you. My dad could have been horrible to me. But our Heavenly Father never is. God does not punish us. I can't tell you how many people have had to try and have conversations and talk off ledges, not physically or literally, but emotionally and spiritually, walk them off of ledges because they felt like their whole life was a punishment from God or something that they had done 20 years before. When I counsel people that have defined themselves by their sins for so long, I bring them to this gospel because it's, again, at the heart of those two things we talked about last week. God is what? God is love. And I can only control what I allow myself to control. I can only manage what I allow myself to manage. I can't affect, I can affect others, but I can't dictate what others do, think, act. But how much do we spend agonizing in that? That's where we come into the second brother in this story. Now, the older son had been out in the field, and on his way back, as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, Your brother has returned, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry. And when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. When your son returns who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fattened calf? He said to him, My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. At different times in our lives, we play the role of all three of those individuals, the father, the older son, and the younger son. How many times have we been mad at family or friends that went and did what the younger son did, and they come back and want to get back in your good graces. Oh, heck no. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Other way around. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. No. Sorry. You got your one shot. That's it. What does Jesus tell us? How many times must I forgive my brother? Well, depending on the, the gospel, it's either 70 times, 7 times. Again, those numbers, 7 and 10. Or 77 times. But the number seven is an imperfection. So even in that, the son is showing us the love and mercy and compassion of the father. Because when Jesus is asked, how many times must I forgive my brother? He says, as long as it takes you and him to get it right. 
And that's what he's saying to us. Lord, man, I have come to confession every week, every month, every year, every fill in the blank with the same list of sins. How could you possibly forgive me? I'm contrite. I, 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 I come in with the intention with changing my life, but I mean, obviously I haven't because I'm doing the same things again. I mean, how could you possibly forgive me? He looks up with compassion. He looks up with love. And he doesn't look up with southern hospitality that says, oh, bless your heart. Though that's how we want to look at each other sometimes. That's what we expect from God. Oh, bless your heart. I learned that a couple years ago, I want to say. I always heard that growing up and thought it was the sweetest thing in the world until I realized people were calling me a moron. It's like, what? My childhood is ruined. Oh, bless your heart, Danny. You guys know you still do it. I've even heard that a couple times. I've been here. Oh, bless your heart, Father. Hey, now. But we're called not just to call a spade a spade for ourselves, but to look at our Heavenly Father with eyes of appreciation, as the first son does in the gospel. How many times, though, do we fall into that trap of, man, I never got to have fun as a kid. Look at all these kids that went and partied all the time. They went and got drunk. They had all these amazing adventures. If you ask any of those kids about those amazing adventures, every single one of them says, Father, I made a mistake. Uh Uh-huh. It's on Facebook. I've seen it. Because you guys put it on Facebook. You guys, too. I see these things, and it's like, I'm going to see this on the news one day. And I've actually seen some of those, like, oh, my gosh. Or someone will come and tell me a story. It's like, yep, I know. I already saw it on social media. How? Because <laughs> I'm on there all the time. But we look at those people and say, you got to have fun. What we think fun is, because the grass is always greener on the other side. And I was here and did what I was supposed to do. I went to Mass every Sunday. I went through and got my sacraments in the order I was supposed to at the time I was supposed to. What about me? Am I just chicken liver here? which I feel bad for chicken liver because I don't know what's always been the bad thing there. I don't like chicken liver, but some people do. But am I just chicken liver here? Am I not worth anything? And that's how this older son looks at God the Father. And so when we look at our siblings, our family, our friends, who have gone and done something egregious and try and come back and repent, and we're like, I don't trust you, We're looking at them with the eyes of this second son, of which the father says to us the same thing that he says to him, hey, everything I have is yours. But will you rejoice with me today? Because your brother who has been lost has been found. He didn't get it, but he finally, it clicks. And the first time that we see this playing out in the gospel is on that cross. We call him the good thief. I feel bad for the other guy, but he's the good thief because he got away with it and still got to go to heaven because God loves him the same way that he loves all of us. When we talk about the the sacrament of reconciliation in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about the unforgivable sin. Does anybody know what the unforgivable sin is? No. 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 It's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. 
Now, what have we said about God so far? God is love. God will not force anything upon us. God gives us free will, right? So the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let's define that for a moment. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's believing that God does not have the power and authority to forgive your sins, so you don't ask for it. So why is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit the only unforgivable sin? Because God is not going to force his forgiveness on you. He can't give it to you unless you ask for it. So the only unforgivable sin is not asking for it. Everything else is forgivable. So when I have people come to confession and say, Father, God can't forgive me, are you going to ask him? Yeah, then yes, I can. And they think that I'm being trite about it. No, seriously, like God will forgive anything and everything. It's us that struggles with that forgiveness. I can't forgive others because I can't forgive myself. And I can't believe that God can forgive me because I can't forgive me. And so if I can't forgive me, why would God ever forgive me? Because the Lord looks up with eyes of compassion, with eyes of love. And those are some of the main attributes when we talk about the Father. The Father, in the fullness of time, is love, as the Son and the Holy Spirit are, as we'll break open next week and the week after. We've got about five minutes left, because that went by really fast again. <laughs> what questions do you guys have, if any? And I'll repeat them this week. People got on to me for not repeating questions. I forget sometimes. doesn't have to be about this, but just in general. Yes, all sins are forgivable. What does it take for a Catholic to be excommunicable? So there are specific things in canon law that say if you do this, if you teach this, if pretty much what it comes down to is if you're obstinate in the faith and publicly teach it, then you can be excommunicated. You can always be recommunicated, though. That's not the right word, but you can be brought back into the fullness of communion with the faith. So when we talk about Galileo, oh, he was excommunicated because he taught this, this crazy thing that the earth revolved around the moon. Who would ever think, or the earth revolved around the moon? Earth revolves around the sun. Who would ever think that? Well, we all do now. But they went back and remitted the excommunication. That just because you're excommunicated does not mean that you cannot be forgiven. Now, there's normally some, some hoops you have to jump through to get back in. For instance, when we talk again, I'm talking about reconciliation again, when we talk about the seal of confession, if a priest breaks the seal of confession, whether you know it or not, he has been excommunicated from the church. It is an excommunicable, excommunicatable offense. Anytime a priest breaks the seal of confession, he is no longer in communion with the church. He is no longer following, practicing what the church follows and practices. The priest then must go to confession for that to become back into the church. And there's a whole list of things and ways that it gets reported because, again, if I go to confession to confess that I've, committed, that I've um, broken the seal, well, that priest can't break the seal to then let another one. That I... So there's a whole back-channeling of events that then goes up to the disciplinary board, more or less, of the Vatican that then gives punishments to get back in, gives you penances to get back into the church. So if you've been excommunicated and it's public knowledge... Go to confession, 
the priest will then figure out what he has to do to make sure that you can get back in communion with the church. So there is nothing that I know of outside of stubbornness and not repenting for what you've done, again, not asking for forgiveness, that can eternally excommunicate you if you're willing to, to change your way of life, basically. So, so, yes, so, so politicians that, uh, I don't want to get into the political conversation, but politicians that are actively practicing, that's why some bishops will refuse them communion, because they're not in communion with the church at that, when they're publicly going out and doing things like that. Um, and, and so that's above my pay grade. Thank you, God. That's above my pay grade. <laughs> um, but basically, for us as Catholics, what is our role in the life of those who have been excommunicated? Pray for them. Love them. Not because they deserve it, just like we don't deserve it, but God's going to give it to us anyways. What do you mean? At some point, they will change or they won't. And our role is to offer them a way back in. If they choose to do so, then they have to change what they're doing. But if they say, no, I'm not going to change, then they have made their decision. At that point, if someone has been excommunicated and stubbornly refuses to change, that's a great question. That's above my, I hate to say, it, but that's one that's like, that's above my pay grade. I don't know. For, for me, it, I don't. No. At that point, it would go, I'd have to look specifically into it, so I'll look into what the process is for that. Um, but I know it's probably the bishop's council of that um, community um, for things like that. Our role, though, is always to pray, to forgive, to love. Um, when we talk about things like abortion, which we'll get to those, I think it's the end of November, beginning of December, when we get into Catholic social teaching, maybe uh, early January. But we'll break apart things um, in Catholic social teaching, talk specifically about abortion, the death penalty, uh, euthanasia, right to life, um, immigration, and some of those hot topic issues that the church has stances on. And we'll, we'll talk about a little bit about that actually this Sunday. Uh, this weekend, we're having um, Catholic Charities Weekend. Um, there's a lot of people that are actually contacting the diocese. We got an email today saying, well, what is Catholic Charities doing about what's happening at our southern border? And so there's actually got a full email about that um, this week. So I'll go into a little bit about that. But also, what's Catholic Charities doing about um, the refugees uh, from Afghanistan? Well, as of today, it was on the news this evening, um, Oklahoma, specifically, the Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and in Tulsa, were helping to facilitate 2,000 refugees into the state um, in the next few weeks. Um, so we are doing what we can with what we have, but it takes those funds from those appeals like this uh, Catholic appeal this weekend. Thank you. Um, let's end in prayer because we're at time. That way those that need to leave can, and those that want to stay around and talk, we can stay around and talk. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give praise and thanksgiving to you for your love, for your mercy, for your compassion, for our waywardness, that you continue to give us ways, as the Father did in today's gospel, back to you, back to grace, and back to communion. We pray that you may continue to shower your love upon us, continue to open our hearts to new ways of life and to love. We give thanks to you specific specifically today on the feast day of your mother's birth, 
that she may intercede for us always and intercede for those who do not have people to pray for them. And we pray for this intercession as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. See you next week.